So let's just get to it. Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 to 36. Um, Let's read the text together. It says, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed the fast so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherabiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers, And I weighed them out, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed them, I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you as well. As these articles are consecrated to the Lord, the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully as you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest, Eleazar, son of Phinehas, who was with him. And so were Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at the time. Then the exiles who returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can just celebrate your word together. And we pray that you will speak to us and that people here will truly encounter you. And Father, once again, gain a sense of your worthiness of our all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Here's a question that I want to start off with. It might be a bizarre one, but, you know, do you want to be faithful to God? You know, is that weird to ask? You know, I'm going to assume that all of us want to be. I think that's why I think it's weird. Or we wouldn't be at church, right? But maybe the better question that I really want to ask you is not if we want to be faithful to God, but are we as faithful and passionate and committed as we'd like to be in our faith? And for many of us who go to church, um, I think we're here. We show up because we know we need to grow. You know, we know that we need to become, we, you know, we know that we need church and we need these teachings. We need worship. We need prayer. We need these things to become the Christ follower that we know that we were saved to be. And church does help a lot and offer a lot in this area. And so do things like spiritual disciplines and accountability 
and serving in, in different places, which I'm so thankful that many of you do. But over the years, I've learned repeatedly that there's only one thing that will keep you passionately committed and faithful to God, and that is God himself. And more specifically, I think continually encountering his worthiness is what we need. You know, his worthiness to be worshipped, his worthiness to be followed, his worthiness to be feared even. When we continually encounter his worthiness, that's what keeps us grounded in him and passionate and thankful for all that Christ did for us. You know, I think one of the fundamental flaws of faith today is that we've gotten into this mode of um, always wanting to know how faith is going to benefit us. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I remain faithful, Eddie, and if I really do good, you know, what's in it for me? How will this change my life? How is doing all this good for the church or doing all this good for the kingdom, how is it going to benefit my life? As a result, and 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 thinking like that makes sense. It's totally worldly, but it totally makes sense, you know, because a lot of our lives are like that, right? If I work one hour, I get twenty dollars. If I practice my instrument, I'm going to improve in my instrumental skills or my musical skills. But if you think about it, faith at the core does not work like that. You know, faith is a response to what God has already done for us. Through Christ. We put our faith in Christ because of who he is and because of what he has already done for us. Are there ways that we're going to benefit from faith? Of course there is because a loving father, you know, always wants to give good and perfect gifts to his children. So we're always going to get great things. And so we're always going to benefit. But Christians, I think, often get disappointed and disillusioned by faith and even by their faith in Christ because some have mistakenly turned faith into an act of receiving what we feel we deserve when in fact faith is really just an act of trust for what we don't. What I've learned over the years and is, is that which keeps our hearts and our minds firmly planted in the correct camp, which is a heart and mind that is absolutely completely, continually blown away by his worthiness is when his worthiness is firmly kept at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Because when we don't, you know, I think the Christian life can easily become self-centered. You know, I recently read a book of a single woman who gave her life to become a medical missionary uh, in the Congo for 20 years of her life. And she was so passionate about loving people. She became a Christian early on in her age. And she just loved seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. And when she got to the Congo, that's all she wanted. It was tough. It was difficult. It's Africa. It's hot. It's humid. They don't have many resources. But her heart for the kingdom, her love for God, and her passion to see people come to know Jesus, you know, really drove her every single day. But after serving there for a decade, there, were, there was a huge tribal war that occurred where she was captured and where she was also raped. And, you know, obviously I've never gone through anything like that. And I can't even imagine what that would be like. And I can't even imagine how that might rattle my faith in God. And it really shook her to the core 
as well as she writes in her biography. You know, and the burning question a lot of times for her was, you know, she was asking this question, is it worth it? You know, I gave up my whole life back in Scotland or back in Ireland. I, be, I gave up my whole life to become a missionary, a single missionary, you know, a medical missionary, you know, serving my life for all these years. I have nothing to my name because I gave everything for Jesus Christ, all to go there and to suffer and suffer and then to suffer unimaginably. And to lose everything. And she kept on asking, is it worth it? Is all this worth it? And after struggling for many days, um, God helped her realize that ultimately she was asking the wrong question. Because when we ask questions like, oh man, is it worth it to serve God? Is it worth it to give all to the church? Is it worth it to give everything for the kingdom? Is it worth it? When we're asking questions like that, those are questions that we ask when we are at the center of our lives. But when God is at the center of our lives, the question that we ask is, isn't he worthy? And that's what she discovered. You know, it may not be worth it to live for God or to live for Christ on paper. But one look at his worthiness tips the scales. There is no question because he is worthy of all. Right? And after realizing that once again, she decided to dedicate another 10 more years to serving in the Congo. And she gave herself even more comprehensively for the work of the gospel. You know, God is worthy of our all. And if you look at the end of our passage today, you know, we're going to start at the end. But if you look at our end of the passage today, we see that there were so many sacrifices that were made to God. And if you look at those numbers, those numbers are really significant. Twelve, you know, there are twelve, you know, the number twelve represents the twelve tribes of Israel. Ninety-six is a multiple of twelve. And seventy-seven is a very interesting number as well. There's a lot of controversy behind that number. But ultimately, all agree that seven, you know, seven is the number of completeness in scripture. And 77, they believe, represents this huge number, right? You know, just like Jesus says that we aren't, we aren't, we aren't to forgive seven times, but we're to forgive 70 times seven. What did he mean in that passage? It meant unlimited, right? And so 77 is this huge number of completeness, all to say that when you look at those sacrifices at the end of our passage today, what it's telling us is that the only proper response to the worthiness of God is our all, our comprehensive all. You know, all of us probably realized that the moment that we met Jesus for the first time, the one look, and you knew that he deserved everything in your life. But life sometimes can cloud that truth and that reality, therefore clouding our faith. But that truth does not change, even though our hearts change sometimes, or our hearts are so fickle, aren't they? God is worthy of our all. And so our fight each and every single day till the day that we die is to keep his worthiness at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. And that is a spiritual battle. But our passage today gives us three habits that hopefully we can practice so that his worthiness can stay at the forefront of your hearts and your minds. And the first thing that we can practice is this, trust, learning to entrust our lives to God. Let's look at verses 21 to 23. It says, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed the fast 
so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Now to recap the story once again, God has moved the king of Babylon to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and not only build the the city, but the walls of the city as well. And Ezra the priest is given the task of leadership to do this. Last week, we saw that Ezra gathered all the Israels down by the river, all the, all the Jews by down by the river, Ahava, and even gathered the priests as well. And now they're ready to go, but they don't decide just to go, do they? Ezra first proclaims a fast. A fast is not eating. Now, why did he do that? The text says, it's they proclaim the fast so they can humble themselves before God and to ask him for a safe journey. Now, what you need to realize is that this journey was an extremely dangerous four-week journey. And it's a journey that that you know is 1,400 kilometers long. That's really long, right? That's really far. That's like from Sydney to Mackay, you know, way right near the Whit Sundays. It's really far. Can you imagine walking? That far. So that's a very long journey. But not only is it long, but it was very dangerous because there were many thieves, bandits, ambushes along the way. And so they declared a fast and sought after God because they knew that they needed his supernatural protection. But what you need to realize is more than just dependence for safety, they were really fasting so that their hearts could trust God. See, we don't fast as if fasting makes God protect us more. It's not true, right? Because he's a loving father. He'll protect us no matter what. But we fast so that our hearts can be his. And that's why they fasted. Ezra knew that they needed to trust God. They had fears. They were scared. None of them had, had ever traveled this road. They had always heard stories of people getting uh, ambushed, bandits, People getting robbed. They'd never traveled that far. Who knows if they have the physical you know, stamina to last the journey. So they fasted. Why? So that the people of God could trust their God. You see, trust is a response to God's goodness in Christ that centers our lives upon Jesus Christ. But trust is also a discipline that we practice so that we can stay centered upon Christ and not ourselves. Fasting helped these Jews place God and his worthiness at the center of their journey, not their fears or their needs. And Ezra knew that that's what his people needed the most. And I think many Christians today are in the exact same boat, aren't we? You know, we have faith in Christ, but many times our fears, our desires, our needs are always at the forefront of our hearts and our minds, right? We are at the center and not the worthiness of Christ. And we need to learn how to discipline our hearts and our minds to keep his worthiness at the forefront. And one thing we can do to do that is to Learn how to entrust things to God. You know, in our passage today, the Jews entrusted their journey to the Lord. And the point was this, 
that whatever happened upon the journey, sure, they didn't want anything to happen. They wanted to be, you know, perfectly perfect. You know, they didn't want to get robbed or anything like that. But the point of them fasting and entrusting things to God was that whatever happens upon that journey in the next four weeks, whether it was safe passage or whether it was even death, fasting and entrusting those things to God prepared their hearts to trust in God's goodness for it. And a lot of times we need to learn the same. You know, I mean, do you entrust your daily schedule to God? Yes, we wake up, we pray about our daily schedule sometimes because we want what we want. We want God to do what we want him to do within our lives. But what happens when, you know, it doesn't work out that way? We get angry, we get frustrated, and we get deeper into ourselves. Well, maybe entrusting your schedule to God will free you to say, God, you're in control. And if those things don't turn out the way I want to, God, I'm going to praise you for it because I know that you're good and you're working out good things within my life. You know, do you, have you trusted this pandemic into the Lord's hands, right? Do you trust that next job interview to God? Do you entrust torn ligaments in your ankle to God? Praise God for torn ligaments in your ankle, right? We need to learn how to do that each day. That way, you know, we never doubt the goodness and the sovereignty of God within our lives because he's always there and he's always working within our lives. His love and his care for us never changes. But our understanding and a lot of times our response to him does. Once again, we're so fickle in trusting things into God's hands intentionally. A lot of times we do it through prayer. Maybe we fast about it, whatever it might be. Entrusting things to God is the intentional act of trusting that God is good and that he loves us and that he is in full control of our lives and that he is actively, intentionally working out his good in us. And the reason why that's so important is that no matter what happens, whether it's triumph or tragedy, we can stay focused upon his worthiness to be worshipped. And we can actually give him that worship no matter what happens. You know, now once again, I want to clarify something that I think is frequently misunderstood. You know, and I said it already twice, but I'll say it once again to be clear. You know, entrusting things into God's hands doesn't make God more favorable towards us. It doesn't make him bless him more. Nothing can increase his love and goodness for us. But entrusting things into God's hands positions our hearts to keep him and his glory and his sovereignty and goodness at the center of our lives, not our desires nor our wants, right? So, so that whatever the outcome may be, we'll always realize his worthiness. I hope you guys get that. I hope that's something that we learn how to practice. Praise God, you know, that I can't walk that well. Praise God for the pain, you know, praise God for torn ligaments, you know, praise God for all the challenges that we face today, but praise God for all the goodness too. Let's grow in our discipline of trust and entrusting things to God. Secondly, uh, be generous. Verse 24 to 27 says, then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his official, and all Israel present there, present there, had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 100 derricks, 
and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. Now, the amount of silver, gold, and bronze here in this passage is absolutely massive, okay? The king gave several tons, tons of silver and gold and bronze so that God could be worshipped in Israel. Now, here's the question. Now, why would a pagan king offer so much precious metals to a foreign god? Is it because he feared God? Is it because he worshipped God himself personally? No, it's not. But the thing is this. Kings back then recognized the worth of another king through the generosity of their wealth, right? Through the generosity of their gift and offerings. And even this pagan king could see and feel that the God of the Jews was worth tons of precious silver, gold, and bronze. He knew and he recognized the worthiness of God and responded generously or responded with a generosity that matched his worthiness. Uh, there was a very great missionary named C.T. Studd. He was the missionary that started WEC, W-E-C, World Evangelization Crusade, which eventually became World Evangelization for Christ. And, you know, he was a wealthy man uh, from England who sold everything to make the gospel known and in this world. And even when everyone said that he was too old and too sick and too crazy to continue in gospel work, at 50 years old, he became a missionary to the Sudan or to Sudan where he eventually gave his life for the people there. Um, he once said this, and the reason why he was so radical is he said this. He said, if Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. You guys get that? I mean, he was a man who knew that if God had given his all to him, the only proper response was for us to continually give our all back to God. Right? God is worthy of our all. You know, the word generous, I, I use the word generous in our point today. I don't think it's the best word, but it's the best word that I could think of to describe our response to his worthiness. You know, it's not just that he deserves our all, right? That's not what I'm talking about. That is what I'm talking about. But this word generous describes a heart that wants to give him our all. Yes, he deserves it. But the second component is we got to want to give it. We got to be compelled to give it, right? But that's why I use this word generosity. You know, we need to learn how to be generous in response to his worthiness. Let's learn to give him everything and entrust and just be ready to offer all that we have. Be generous with your money. Be generous with your possessions. Be generous with your future, right? I know a lot of times we like to lock on our own future. We make all our own future plans, but be generous with that to the Lord. Be generous with your families and always be ready to offer them to God and to use them as a continual response to his worthiness that we continually find in Jesus Christ. And to, and to steal a quote from uh, another famous missionary, Jim Elliott, it's the man or the woman who continually learns to give what he cannot keep in this life in order to gain what he can't lose in tomorrow's life, 
that continually encounters and is grounded in the worthiness of Christ, right? Let's always learn to be generous. Let's always be open-handed, ready to give, ready to offer, whatever, whenever, however God calls us to with all that we have. Lastly, let's be surrendered. Verse 28 says this, verse 28 to 30 says, I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. Verse 28 is the main verse that I really want you guys to look at here. Ezra declares that all the donations from the king is consecrated to the Lord. And that totally makes sense, right? The king literally gave all that gold, silver, and bronze to give to God. So they're consecrated to God, right? Um, but what's really interesting in verse 28 here is that Ezra declares that the priests as well are also to be consecrated to the Lord. And the question is, why is that? And the answer is because the people of God, these priests, needed to be reminded that they are his. Right? To be consecrated means to be set apart and dedicated for God alone. Right, Set apart and dedicated for God alone. These priests needed to be reminded that that was their role the moment that they came to know God. And so here's the question. As priests ourselves, because we're a kingdom of priests, do you see yourself in that way? Because that's what Christ accomplished for us, didn't he? Right? He died on the cross and he exchanged his perfect righteousness for all of our sinfulness so that we can now be completely holy, which is set apart. So that we can now live the life that we were created for and saved for, which is for him, which is to be consecrated. Faith in Jesus Christ consecrates us to God. We are consecrated to God as well. I think Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, where he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Here we go. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And I love that in-your-face statement. You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. It's kind of uncomfortable to hear, isn't it? But one of the toughest battles that we'll face each and every single day of our faith is ownership, right? Do you own your life or does God really own your life? And I'm not talking on, on paper, but I'm talking practically, your heart, your mind. You know, Jesus purchased us with his blood, blood to bring us back to God. So we are not ours. We are his. God owns us. Yet the practical reality sometimes is every single day we still try and act like we're the boss, 
of our own lives. And I think that's where we get in trouble. But if we want the worthiness of Christ to remain at the forefront of our hearts and our minds, then we must learn how to surrender to God daily so that he can remain the king over our lives. But how do we do that? And I think one practical way of doing that is by actively using what God has given us for his glory and not ours. Our previous point being generous, saying we need to be ready. We need to be able to offer those things, right? We need to be able to have the heart of generosity. But now what I'm saying is we need to actually use those things for his glory and not for us. You know, if you look at our passage today, the priest's ultimate responsibility was to make sure that all of God's things got used for his glory. So the question is, what if we used all of all, everything, that God has given us from our families, uh, our jobs, our possessions, our relationships, our talents, our abilities, and so on. All those things. You can list so many. What if we used those things for God's glory? If we did that, then we would continually be reminded that our jobs are not ours. Ultimately, you know, you're going to go through this whole process, but let me just get to the end. I think ultimately you're going to realize that your job is not yours. It doesn't exist ultimately for you. But it was a gift given by God to us so that we could use it for him. Our families are ultimately not ours. They're his. Our abilities and our talents are not ours, but they were given to us so we could use for him. And they're his. Our relationships are not ours, but his. And the more we practice those things each and every single day, the more that we realize that we ourselves are not ours, but we are his created and saved for his glory. When we continually use our, everything that we have for him, those are, those are the conclusions that we come to. And when we do, we can stay surrendered to him each and every single day. Here's one example. You know, my wife and I, we have a great marriage, but we fight just like any other couple does, right? And there are times that we fight really hard and we hurt each other very deeply. And I remember there was one, one of those fights we were fighting really hard. We hurt each other very badly. And, uh, you know, we both thought we were right. And we thought, oh, we both thought that the other person was absolutely ridiculous and selfish and full of themselves, all that kind of stuff, right? And in my heart, you know, I was like, man, why did I even marry her in the first place? Right? And then I began, in, I, in my heart, I began listing all these reasons why it doesn't make sense to stay married. Have you ever done that as a married couple, right? That's when you know you're in a really bad place, but it happens. You know, we're humans and we're selfish and we're sinful, right? And I am too, and I'm, you know, that's who I am. But thankfully, you know, before I got married and even still today, I teach many couples on how to have a Christ-centered marriage. And, and one of those lessons kind of goes like this. Marriage was created for God's glory and not your pleasure or fulfillment. That's like one of the lessons, right? And in, in those words, just started to echo in my heart, right? My marriage is not mine. It's God's. And when I realized that, that's when I was awake, awakened to my rebellion. You know, I wanted my marriage my way. You know, I didn't want to be who God called me to be as a husband. I didn't. I wanted to be the boss. I wanted to dictate the terms and the conditions of my relationships, you know, especially my marriage, you know. But what does it mean for my marriage to be God's? It means this. It means me being whoever I need to be 
It means me dying to whatever needs to die in order to build my wife in Christ and to infuse our union with his holiness, his love, and his goodness. And if that means my loss, so be it. If that means unfair suffering on my part, so be it. If that means I have to continually, daily, 10 times a day, die to myself, then so be it. That's what it means to be a godly husband and a godly, or a godly wife. Whatever it takes to make sure that God is the Lord over my marriage. Whatever it takes, it's got to be done. Because my marriage does not exist for me and it is not for my pleasure nor my fulfillment. But it's what God entrusted to me to give him glory. It is his. You know, to be fully surrendered, whether it be your job, whether it be your family, or whether it be your talents, you're going to realize that it costs a lot. But if we truly believe that God is worthy of all, then it only makes sense that we continually feel the pains of personal loss for the increase of his glory. Doesn't it? That's exactly what Christ experienced. And that's why we thank Christ so much. He gave his life. It cost him everything to declare the glory of God and the worthiness of God to be followed and worshipped in this world. And that's, what's going to, that, that's what it's going to mean for us to be fully surrendered to him. Is that tough? Of course it is. But when we're surrendered, our daily death to self helps us encounter and stay grounded in his worthiness. So be surrendered. You know, God is worthy of our all. And that's why we fight each and every single day to make sure that his worthiness is always fresh in our hearts and in our minds. Otherwise, Christianity turns into a religion rather than this thankful worship offering sacrifice of our lives, which is what it meant to be. You know, that's what it's always meant to be. So let's fight to keep the worthiness of God fresh at the forefront of our hearts and minds each and every single day. Entrust your days to God, be generous, and be fully surrendered. Let's pray. You know, God is worthy of our all. And if there are ways that you've been compromising or maybe, you know, this message awakened you to your rebellion, let's repent of those things. Let's surrender to him. Let's entrust areas of our lives that we refuse to let go of to God so that we can continually realize his worthiness of all. And let's move in those ways so that his worthiness can be revealed to the world just like Christ did for us. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you and we thank you just that you're always good, that you're always in control, that your love never changes for us. And we thank you, God, that no matter how many times we are awakened to our own rebellion, the forgiveness that we find in Christ is so comprehensive. We always find that your arms are open wide to receive us and to love us and to forgive us and to embrace us and to empower us so that we might be faithful to you once again. Father, it's so difficult because we're so selfish. We want to be the boss. We always want to be in control. We want to control everything. But Lord, teach us how to surrender and to entrust and to be generous with all those things. Everything that we have is a gift from you. But it's not a gift for us to keep and own, but it's a gift for us to use for your glory. So Lord, help us to always um, hold on to those gifts with open-handedness, ready to give away to use for your glory, whether it be our money, our possessions, whether it be our talents and our giftings, whether it be our futures or our families. Lord, may your worthiness always be so great that we can see all of our things in light of it and so that we might be able to give them away and use them for your glory. God, I pray that you'll help each one of our people to remain faithful to you, Lord. This week. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name.